Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Shar. And I'm Kelly. And we're finally wrapping up Women in Horror Month and our love of horror event with this episode on Crimson Peak from 2015. But first, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. So we created this drink to be a memory of what once was. <laughs> I also wanted to let everyone know that thanks to all your donations through our Patreon and through all the button and magnet purchases that we had at Fan Expo, we get to donate $200 to Wava. Yay! Woo! That's great. Yes. Now ah. stick around for next month. Don't change your Patreon and we will make our own money next month. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Just so you know, this episode will contain discussions on gaslighting. So if that's something that you don't need to hear about today... That's fine. Just take a step back from this episode. So I made the drink this episode. You did. I did. And, and you purposefully asked me to not take a sip until we recorded. And I know that this is a Kelly drink because I'm staring at it. Yeah, it's 100% a Kelly drink. It's I'm surprised there's not a little rind in it. Yes, I didn't have any. Ah. But ideally, you would put a rind on it. I thought we had a lemon in the fridge. It is extremely old. Ah. Well, let me take a sip of this not extremely old lemon. I might end up taking a new picture of this drink when I go out and get a lemon. Someone suggested putting cherry in this one, but that's dumb. Like a maraschino. Oh, yeah, I could see that. That was pretty good. You think? I was nervous. But, um, yeah, it is a Kelly drink. I would not order this myself at a restaurant. It's a lot sweeter than... My normal drinks, but this is like an after dinner drink, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or before. It's kind of like a happy hour. It contains what you would call apartifs. <gasps> I see. Oh, that is that why it's kind of sweet, which is why I don't absolutely hate it? Yeah, a little bit. Ah. It's not my go-to, so I call this drink Memories of the Past. Ooh. And it's more or less a Negroni. It's a little bit uh, changed up. And I used a bunch of our um, Woods Distilling sponsorship stuff. Nice. Um, which is why it's so flavorful. Shilling. Here we go. <laughs> but uh, Negronis aren't my go-to. Usually I go for old fashions. Yeah, but like, you do appreciate a good Negroni every now and then. Yeah. Once It depends on the place. I feel like, I mean, Negronis are one of those drinks where it heavily relies on the ingredients that you use, like the quality of the liquors. Right. Um, whereas I feel like a good old fashioned is just whiskey. And a bad whiskey is still a good whiskey, so. <laughs> That's true. And out of the two, I've definitely heard you complain about Negronis way more. Like yeah, you, when you, you order it and then it arrives and then it's a letdown. Awful. You used to have a boss who worked for or owned a restaurant who made awful Negronis. And it really upset me about that restaurant. Yeah. There are other things that were not good about that restaurant, but I don't work there anymore. Well, the worst was their Negronis. <laughs> Anyways, I'm glad that you like this drink. I do. I, but there is lemon. There's something citrusy. Or is it just from the liquor that you use? No, there's lemon in there. Okay. Yeah. Yours is actually a different uh, ratio than mine. Partially because mine was like the sam the tester. Because I right. made this right now. In my mind, I was like, all these ingredients will make a Negroni. But I wasn't too sure the, the ratio. Mm -hmm. So... I'm drinking through mine. That's a good tip for people at home. If you feel like you think that the cocktail you're making is going to be good, try making it first, then tasting it, because then you get free liquor, and then the second one is going to be 
better because you're drunk. So, you know, most of the time when I do these, I d- try not to taste before to make sure it's good. But the one time that I did taste before that I really that really sticks out was in season one when I made the um, Andy's birthday. Do you oh, remember yeah. that Oreo milkshake that I made? I do. And the first time I made it, I just didn't really think of ratios at all when I was making the drink. I was like, I like strong drinks. <laughs> and then it was really bad. But the second time was good. Yeah. <laughs> See, I do the thing where I'll look up a classic drink or an existing drink and then modify it in the way that I think the movie's themes would match the drink. Yep. And you're like, throw a bunch of stuff together. See how it does. Hey, I still think of the themes. Yeah. Throw a bunch of themes together. See how it does. Yes. That is fair. But I've really been thinking of all our past drinks from season one because now I'm making those digital drink recipe cards. Ooh, so you're thinking of the past. Yes. And it's really coming through in this episode as I drink this cocktail called Memories of the Past. Wow. I'm so glad that we took photos of every drink that we made because it's really cool to see the... I want to make a book like of all of them. Like a collage. It would, Yeah. And then you can play... There's something unforgettable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you had the time. Make a a Windows Movie Maker slideshow with them. Yeah. If you're interested in seeing our digital drink recipe cards, you can find them all on our Patreon. Woo! Patreon.com slash drink and scream. I mean, if you just want to see them, you can also look at our Instagram. But if you want to know how to exactly make them. Do you post to Instagram? I'm so out of the loop on our social media stuff. That's okay. You don't (laughs) have to worry about that. So yeah, successful drink done. Love it. I Yeah. Okay. I won't say I love it, but I am. You are drinking it. I'm enjoying drinking it. It's not something that I would choose to drink all the time, but it's a nice change. It's a sipping drink too. I was honestly thinking of just making a really bad tea. Oh, that would (laughs) have sucked. Yeah. But I'm I was glad like, you didn't. If I did this drink, I probably would have done tea. Because there were a lot of drinks in this movie. Like everybody was either drinking um, like cocktails yeah. at dinner parties or champagne or tea. And I was like, do I just make something from the movie or do I make something that feels like the movie, which mm-hmm. is what I tried to do here. Yeah. Plus, like this season, we've been putting so many red things in our drinks. Every yeah. drink this season has been red. So I'm like, don't want it is crimson peaks. So yeah. maybe it would be an easy <laughs> out, but. No, definitely just feeling of the movie in a drink. So this week we watched Crimson Peak from 2015. It premiered on October 16th of that year. It's written by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins, directed by Guillermo del Toro, starring Mia Wasikowska. Is that how you say it? Shit. Uh, I should have looked up an interview. Wasikowska. That sounds good. Starring Mia Wasikowska as Edith Cushing, Jessica Chastain as Lucille Sharp, and Tom Hiddleston as Thomas Sharp. You pronounce it Chastain? How do you say it? Chastain? Oh, that could be right. Man, everyone in this this movie has a hard to pronounce name except for Hiddleston. And even then, that could be tricky. You never know. It's kind of like jump roping over letters to get that last name. (laughs) My ice cube was a sphere and now it is not. So now you get the... Good, good tinkles. So, you know, we're really drinking. This synopsis was uh, actually already submitted to IMDb. It's written by Claudio Carvalho. So I'm going to steal what he wrote and then I'm going to add into the end because he left suspense. But I'm going to tell you what happens. In the turn of the 20th century in Buffalo, New York, the aspiring writer Edith Cushing is the daughter of the wealthy entrepreneur Carter Cushing. As a child, Edith saw the ghost of her mother that warned her to beware of Crimson Peak. 
And now she is writing a ghost story. While visiting a publisher that is a friend of her father, she stumbles upon her childhood friend, the ophthalmologist Dr. Alan McMichael, who has returned from overseas and is opening an office in the same building. Out of the blue, she also meets the handsome English baronet, Sir Thomas Sharp, who has come to Buffalo with his sister Lucille to seek investors to his machine that mines luxurious red clay from his property. He has a meeting with Carter Cushing and other investors, but Carter refuses to invest any money in his invention. During the night, the ghost of Edith's mother visits her once more and warns her again to beware of Crimson Peak. <laughs> I'm a voice actor. It's funny because I actually am and I'm doing shit. Soon, Thomas seduces Edith and feeling suspicious, Carter hires a private detective to investigate the lives of Thomas and Lucille. A couple of days pass and the detective brings a report to Carter disclosing dark secrets from the past of the siblings. Carter pays a large amount of money to Thomas to end his relationship with Edith by breaking her heart, but he is brutally murdered in a bathroom. Thomas explains to Edith his attitude and they get married and travel to England to live in his derelict mansion over a red clay mine at Allerdale Hall with Lucille. Edith starts to see bloody red ghosts in the shadows and at the public post office discovers that an Italian letter had been sent to a previous Mrs. Sharp. <gasps> As the mystery continues, Edith gets more and more sick, becoming bedridden and coughing up blood. Man, that sounds like me. <laughs> what is happening to Edith and what is the mystery of Allerdale Hall and the Sharp siblings? And that's where he leaves it off. But let me tell you. <laughs> well, it turns out that the siblings are in love. What? Lucille murdered their mother at the young age of 14, and ever since, it has been the two of them against the world. Thomas has been marrying wealthy women and then murdering them at their Crimson Peak estate, so named because of the red clay that comes up from the ground to stain the snow of Allerdale Hall. The ghosts guide Edith to help her solve the mystery of the murders and that she is the next victim to be. Thomas has a change of heart due to accidentally falling in love with Edith and childhood friend Alan comes just in time to help Edith get away. But Lucille finds out about the romance and kills Thomas in a jealous rage. The film ends with an all out battle to the death between Edith and Lucille, with Edith gaining the upper hand thanks to Thomas's ghost offering a distraction. Edith leaves Allerdale Hall with Alan and ends up writing her ghost story, calling it Crimson Peak. I like your reaction to finding out that the siblings are in love. Did you, well, yeah. I've I've watched enough step step sibling porn to know that that's completely logical. I mean, they're not step siblings. <laughs> no, I know, but also like the idea of aristocrat children growing up together, isolated from the world. Yeah, they're the only comfort that they have. I feel like that was like completely normal. I mean, Lucilla is sort of unhinged in the fact that she murdered her mother who had discovered them and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's an aristocrat thing, too. <laughs> Everyone murders their parents and sleeps with their brother. I think that's what Freud said. Yeah. I mean, I played doctor with my cousins. Giggity. Yeah. Hit me with that trailer audio. Ghosts are real. Would you be mine? Edith, this is my sister. The 
are parts of the house that are unsafe. The staff's holding on to things. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. In your own best interest, proceed with caution. Keeping them alive when they shouldn't be. That was a really good trailer. That really made me want to watch this movie. Yeah, and it did a really good job of not showing too many of the creatures. Yeah. Like, we went to scary stories to tell in the dark. And we basically was, knew all of yeah, them. Yeah, like, the whole point you go of going to a Del Toro movie is to see his creature design. Mm-hmm. And, like, that, the trailer for that movie just showed you everything. Whereas this one was like, here's an arm, here's the back of a ghost, and it never really gives away what you're going to see. And it really set up the story well without giving too much away either in that regard. Yeah. And it did that thing that we talked about a while ago where it had scenes that aren't in the movie to create more of a theme without giving away the movie, which I really like. Well, that's that I'm okay with. I'm not a fan of seeing really big, scary things in the trailer and then they're not there. Mm, Like the Sonic model that got changed for the full one. (laughs) You're like, oh, this monster is going to be in the whole movie. And then it turned out to be a cute little blue hedgehog. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, I liked it. It was a really long trailer, but I think I specifically remember seeing that trailer going to the theater. I didn't even feel like it was long. I felt like it was perfect. Maybe we're I'm so used to watching teasers that trailers are. That's fair. Strange and weird. It did a few things that were were odd, like it showed young Edith at the end of the trailer, which kind of made it seem like a child is going to be in the main story. Mm. When in reality, it was just the beginning of the movie of Edith seeing her mother. Yeah. Which is strange. It kind of makes it feel like she has a child and then there's like a time lapse. But I don't know. It was a it's a mystery. It does make me want to watch the movie if I had not seen the movie, which I guess is what a trailer, you know, supposed to do. Yeah. Now that I've seen it more than once, I think I'm good. You're, you're done? I might. It's okay. Okay. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I think that was the fourth time I've seen this movie was when we watched it. Yeah? Yeah. Do you uh, have some thoughts? Do you want my thoughts? I do. On 2015's Crimson Peak? Mm-hmm. Uh, so right off the bat, the first thing I noticed with this movie was like the incredible lighting and not just, man, the scene is well lit. It's the choices that they make with the coloring of the lighting. So when Edith's mother comes to warn her about Crimson Peak, the first thing you notice is that the shadows aren't actually black. They're like tinted green, mm. which to me almost makes it feel like the shadows are like this alternate realm, basically, that exists in the in reality. Which that what you're saying is exactly what I'm sure they wanted to happen. Yeah, I because think because there is that whole ethereal plane that. And they keep trying to break that barrier. And the ghosts come through. And in the yeah. pictures, the, the silver pictures or something can see the ghosts. And the like reality areas are all kind of like tinted red. Whenever there's like fire or uh, a light source, everything's sort of tinted red. Mm-hmm. And at some point, Alan mentions the concept of red, green color blindness being equivalent to like not being able to see the spirits. Yes. So. And they have so much red and green in the movie with those dark green shadows. Exactly. Which I think is really cool. And for a little bit while watching it on our TV, I was like, is our TV poorly calibrated or this is like a bad version of Crimson Peak? It does kind of feel like that, but then you know that it's on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Once you start seeing it a lot more, you're especially when you see scenes that aren't done in that way. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is intentional. Oh. And there was actually a 
uh, fact that I didn't include, but apparently Del Toro specifically wanted it to look like, um, I can't remember what the style of movie was, but there was a director that did kind of like that surreal coloring in their movies. And it made like, made it feel not comfortable kind of. Cause it's like, Oh, this yeah, doesn't look unsettling. like, yeah. Especially when the ghosts are coming. Yeah. And so he intentionally wanted to color the movie that way. Nice. Which is very cool. And it's extremely noticeable and well done. I think I'm really glad that you brought up that, the whole color ratio and the lighting aspect. Cause I don't talk about it all at all in my points, but uh, it really does the, the red clay and the blood, the way it moves, like the physics of it all oh, yeah. and just the coloring of it. It reminds me of the Tim Burton, Sweeney Todd musical, Oh, but it's way better in this one. <laughs> Do you mean like the movie musical or yes. like the actual stage performance no the movie musical oh, yeah. we'll probably do it on drinking and screaming at some point but the whole opening credits uh they follow a trail of blood going mm. down into the oh yeah depths. that's right i do remember that and it's very reminiscent of this i think this came after um and it's i like the this improvements definitely they came made. After. yeah um it's funny that you mention sweeney todd specifically because my second thought is for some reason, I keep imagining that Johnny Depp plays Thomas. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that after we started it. You were like, wait a minute. Yeah. Before we started watching, I was like, oh, thank God we're allowed to enjoy Johnny Depp again now that the controversy has been cleared up. And then you're like, uh-huh. Yeah. And then we started watching it. I was like, wait a minute. Johnny Depp isn't in this movie. Why did I mention that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but that's why my answer was so vague. Because <laughs> you're like, uh-huh. I kind of wonder if it is because it sort of feels Tim Burton-esque. Yeah, and he's always in those movies. He's that style, that genre. Yeah, because like, I don't I was thinking about this, but like I didn't even include this in my thought. But as we were talking, I thought about this. And Tim Burton almost has a way of making the environment feel like its own character. Yep. We kind of talked about this during our live Babadook episode. But like the house is its own creature in like um, uh, Beetlejuice. The house is its own oh, like man. entity. That's another movie we got to do. <laughs> we should just do um, Tim Burton month. Um, but uh, the fact that the mansion, what is it? Edinworth or... Allerdale Hall. Allerdale Hall feels like its own entity, especially the fact that it fucking breathes during when the east winds come in. Yeah. Um, I think that's why it kind of gives off this like Tim Burton feeling. That's fair. And yeah, the spirits are definitely like lingering in this house. Yeah. Which is interesting that like Del Toro more or less made a monster house. Wait, did Tim Burton do the animated movie Monster House? No. Okay. I don't know why I thought of that. I'm going to Google that just now. Just, just to be sure. And I will keep talking. But uh, yeah, like I can totally picture Johnny Depp in the role of Thomas Sharp, except the fact that like Thomas is a little bit like soft. He's more romantic than I really consider Johnny Depp to be. I'm just scanning to make sure I didn't see his name. Yeah. No, he did not make it. OK, but uh, but you know what I mean? Like Johnny Depp, he's he plays like the quirky roles, but he doesn't have that like romantic English softness that uh, Tom Hiddleston has. Yeah. Seeing this film, the romance is very deep and you can, f the emotion I feel is really well portrayed. Yeah. Like you can, I don't know. It feels bad, but I feel like it would be unrealistic to imagine someone falling that deeply in love with Johnny Depp's portrayal of Thomas Sharp. <laughs> Not Johnny Depp specifically, but yeah. like you imagine like Sweeney Todd and, and Jack Sparrow and the guy from the house where Sleepy Hollow, Sleepy Hollow, the one what where he was a writer and 
secluded himself. I don't know that one. His, there was a movie where he was a writer and he secluded himself, but then got scared because his what he wrote was coming to life or something. That sounds good. Although I might be confusing it with the video game Alan Wake because that's also the exact plot of Alan Wake. I'm confused now. Anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, there's just something about Johnny Depp's acting that I wouldn't imagine in this role, which isn't to say that he probably couldn't have done it. It's just Tom Hiddleston fits like fits, a glove. Fits better. Yeah. I want to mention... There's a specific cut that they do in this movie. And oh, it's the like zoom in. Where they create like a circle. circle. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. it almost feels like the Looney Tunes. It like starts with a big circle and then slowly uh, shrinks over someone's face. Yeah. And it's very soft and, and I don't know, subtle, not subtle. It's very explicit. And I have no genuine idea as to why they chose that. It's like Star Wars is Star Wipe. Yeah, I have a thought. Do you? I do. My theater history classes are helping me in this because there's um, Brecht is a very famous writer of plays. And he started this genre where he would be like, you are watching a play. He would like hold up like signs saying like cry or like laugh or whatever. And it was like, I like Jerry Springer. Sort of. Did Be- did Breck make Jerry Springer? It's a bad example, but um, he constantly reminds the audience that what they are watching isn't real. And the point of it is to make us analyze what is happening more than just getting lost in the story of it all. Okay. So I feel like that might be the case here in the sense of, remind like giving us that jolt of like oh yeah this is a movie like okay not a real narrative yeah i would have to watch again because maybe it happens after like very dramatic scenes to Mm -hmm. like kind of take you out of it it definitely also is like a scene transition like the star wars swipe that you're speaking about but i do feel like that combined with the artistry that we're not supposed to ignore of like the architecture they do a lot of like slow shots yeah moving in the house that's interesting because my like Like I said, I don't have a definitive answer, but it did feel almost because it kind of matches the pictures that Alan shows Edith because it's got the 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 pictures were taken in that style where it's like oval shaped. Oh, yeah. And I thought maybe and this would still go along with what you're saying, that since it's a story being told by Edith, maybe these are things that she specifically remembers and wants to like emphasize and bringing back that it the film ends with like this is a book that she wrote. Um, that does go also with the, and the chapter is done and we're going to the next chapter. Yeah. Maybe she would, maybe in the, the fictional book, there are actually pictures that she recreated of those scenes to like signify the beginning or end of a chapter. Yeah. Cause I can imagine those kind of like oval shaped pictures in a book like that style. Yep. I agree. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if there is, I couldn't, I genuinely was looking for any sort of hint as to why they did that. And I couldn't find anything. So maybe we're right. I'm always right. Maybe it's interpretive. (laughs) Plus I'm always right. It's true. That's his last name. Ha. Um, my last thought is less philosophical and or up our own ass. And it's just that those ghosts are really cool. (laughs) They are. I am glad that you brought it up. It's cool. The extra layer of like, you think it's blood, but then it's like, oh, it's the clay yeah, stuck to their ghostliness. And the ghosts kind of like die in the way that their bodies were kept. Mm -hmm. Most of them are clay because that's where 
Thomas and Lucille put the bodies is in their like clay deposits. Mm -hmm. But Edith's mother at the beginning of the movie is like black and draped because she was given a proper burial and she died of, I want to say tuberculosis, but I don't think that's right. It was definitely like something there was because I remember making a comment of like, ooh, that looks so moldy. Yeah. One of those old plagues that infect your lungs or something. Yeah. But it's a I feel like Del Toro is just really good at monster design. So it makes sense that he would think that I'll make the ghosts look the way that they were killed or or preserved or whatever. Um, And I remember the first time I watched this movie that I I don't felt I don't feel like I could enjoy the movie as much as I do now because I was so terrified of any scene that the ghosts were in. It's very scary. Yeah, I remember my fear was extremely higher the first time around, even though you're not a, a scared of no ghosts. I have I have my main point is about the ghosts. OK, yeah. sounds good. Well, to continue mine is that um, there's the way that they do almost like the floating blood, like after Thomas has been killed and he's been stabbed in the face when he comes back to Edith, he's got like his blood is like floating up into the air. Yeah. Which um, this is dumb, but it reminds me of Death Stranding. And it's like this idea of I, I again, this is completely up my own ass, but it feels like it's Death s- Stranding is a video game for those of you who don't know. For those of you listening who don't know about Death Stranding, but it makes it a lot more like ethereal. The fact that it doesn't follow Earth's gravity, basically, mm. and it makes him look very otherworldly. Yep. And it focuses on the like aggression point of which he died. Like he got stabbed in the face. So now for eternity, his blood is going to be floating out of that wound. Right. Which is really cool. And you can see that with um, with Thomas and Lucille's mother in the bathtub. She has the axe, yeah, in their head. And the like blood comes out of the axe. Not an axe, a meat cleaver. A meat cleaver, yeah. Which is really cool. I like that effect. And it makes the ghosts look even more out of this world. The fact that like not only are they just floating and see through, but they also just don't follow Earth's gravity, basically. Yeah. Mm hmm. Interesting. My favorite ghost is the one that stands out in the field during Edith's and points nightmare. like a scarecrow. Yeah. Yeah. There's what do you think that was for? What was they? What were they telling her to do to run away? Um, yeah, either the run away, which is what I think the mother says later on when she's in the bathtub, like leave or something like that, mm. which is always a classic ghost, classic ghost, like run or something. get out of yeah. here, says the ghosts. But there's something about that framing of like an otherwise normal scenery with just something little upsetting about it. Yeah. Like, have you ever seen those um, those pieces of art where it's like a field, but then there's like a monster in the middle of it or like like grotesque machinery or something? No, but it did remind me another video game until dawn. Oh, yeah. That that game specifically is built to uh, figure out what you the player is scared of and then building off of that. And it does that through uh, having you be interviewed by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> and uh, Peter Stormare. It gets you. Yeah. You're interviewed by Peter Stormare. And they show you like images and what scares you more between these two. Does this make you uncomfortable? Why? And one of them is an image of a field with a scarecrow in it. Hmm. Uh, so that's immediately what popped into my head in that moment. Which would make sense because scarecrows are supposed to scare something away, which could be like Edith interpreting this ghost is like, I need to get away. But yeah, there's something about that framing where it's like you could look at 90 percent of that picture and it would be completely fine. But yeah. Then once you spot that ghost, the whole scene gets fucked up. It's very calm and then it's not. Yeah, I really like that. It's I've, I'm a big fan of stuff that takes otherwise safe environments and then adds just a little drop of something that makes it terrifying. Yeah. Which is why it's so rare to find like horror in daylight, I think. 
And then when they do that, it's always done so well. It's so powerful. Yeah. going to take a moment to talk about our sponsors and socials. This episode of Drinking and Screaming is brought to you by Woods Distillery. Um, they are a new sponsor of ours, but I've really enjoyed all of the drinks that we've made with theirs so far. They're so great. Yeah. They were nice enough to give me samples of all of their drinks while I was at their their distillery. I've never been in North Van. Very rarely am I at distillery. Tasting room. Tasting room. There you go. Yeah. Um, and I got a little bit tipsy, but it's so good. Um, we're using not only their gin, which we used before, but their Amaro, um, which is what's a, special about it. It's a. I think this one is the whiskey barreled one. Oh no wonder. Which gave it a little bit of a extra kick to it. Um, but the idea behind their distillery is that they specially, scientifically distill everything separately. All the ingredients are uh, done by themselves and then brought together so they can control like the temperature and stuff of all of their ingredients as they distill, which is apparently a very big, important thing. But most big time hot shots are too lazy. Yes, they told me themselves that it is a lot of work and probably why their their like stock is so hard to make. <laughs> Um, but yeah, their Amaro uh, is really good. I, the first time I tried it was just by itself, which is very tasty. It's that it's got a bit of that sweetness to it. So the other ingredients that I put in, I tried to not make as sweet. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought it, I thought the balance was really good. It was awesome. And their gin is mm, on point. I already talked about their gin a lot in a previous episode, but it is mm, delish. So if you ever find yourself in Northman, go check them out because they're. Very nice. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at drink underscore scream. You can find us on Facebook at drink and scream. You can email us at drinking and screaming at gmail.com. The best way for us to grow as a podcast is for you to help us by just telling your friends. Talk about us. That'd be great. Speaking of friends, we have a discord, which is probably just going to become our main discord, but it is the super hopped up discord uh, at bit.ly slash hopped up discord. It's a really great community. And yeah, we'd love to see you there. Another great community is our Patreon, patreon.com slash drink and scream. We have all, I've started posting. We have like nine of the digital cocktail recipe cards up there. Nice. I've put so much effort into them. They look really cool. I want people to see them. So if you want to know how to make our drinks, follow along with us, that sort of thing, you can become a patron for that. We also have all our bonus episodes coming out. Mm -hmm. We've been working really hard on our podcast and um, it's a real passion project for us, but it takes a lot of time. Honestly, Kelly edits this and I feel so bad. How much effort you'd put in. I haven't slept in years. <laughs> um, and if we were a professional podcast, I would be paying them for their work. So you could help out with that by being a patron or hmm. just telling your friends, growing us any way you can. Huge help. Or, you know, tell a podcast network about us so they can pick us up. Because <gasps> I think you can make money through that. I don't know. But then we got to be servants to the man. I've been doing podcasting for like five years and I have no idea how you're supposed to make money with it. I'm doing my best. <laughs> we don't do it for the money. We do it for the love of the horror and the women and the queer. Now in this gig economy, I, I do most things for money. Just none of them seem to be working. Yeah, I have a hobby. Let's see how I can make money off it. That's that's the hell world we live in. All right, back to the episode. I want to 
want to just build. Do you have another point? No, that was my last one. Perfect, because I really want to build off of your ghost point. Ooh. Because this movie plays off the tropes of the ghosts of past victims helping current survivors. And that is like the main reason as to why most I'm not afraid of ghosts. You ain't afraid most, of no ghosts? Yeah. Most movies that feature ghosts in this trope they don't want to harm the person. They're scary and they accidentally scare people, but really they're trying to help them, which is like, I want, I mean, come on. Can't you just help the girl out? Do you have <laughs> to scare her? You do help her by helping her discover all this evidence. But would she listen if it wasn't scary? Yeah. If she walked into Twin Peaks and there was just like a Casper, the friendly ghost sitting at the door and be like, Hey there lady, you should leave. Then would she really listen or when she sees the like nearly decapitated corpse of the owner's mother sitting in a bathtub screaming at her to run away from the building? Yeah. Then you really are going to run. That's true. They're like, she's not going to listen. We got to just scare her out. (laughs) But also these ghosts are able to help Edith because Lucille and Thomas decide this is my next point to just leave all the shit that's incriminating of them in their home. Why do you do this if your plan is to lure women there and then murder them there? I feel like the simple answer is that it's like the memories like they love having those memories. Like when Lucille is just about to kill Edith, she takes a clip of her hair yeah. and you can see that she has it's like a, a collection. Yeah, that's true. I feel like it's especially it goes with the idea of like clinging on to the past. This yeah. idea that like they're leaving just this box full of evidence in the basement. At least he, Lucille's a little bit protective of the key that opens it. That's true. And I, I was going to say that the best hiding place is the wells, but they only put one body in there. But, I mean, one that we see. Yeah, that's true. But then you're right that I kind of forgot about that whole like treasure possession. Yeah. Like keeping souvenirs of each one. Even beyond that, it's like everything that they do is stuck in the past. Like they could otherwise just leave this clay mine behind, but they have this like need to see it through and feel trapped. Yeah. Yeah. And their entire identity is defined by having killed their mother when they were children. And I think that's what makes uh, Lucille crack is that they finally have managed to fix, perfect this machine. So now her brother doesn't have to murder any more women. He's like, this is perfect. And he loves Edith also. Yeah. So it just, her whole world comes falling down, which is my next point. Oh. I'm really segueing myself very (laughs) well here. I didn't mean to do that. But uh, Mia Wasikowska and Jessica Chastain's performances in this film, I just want to take some time to specifically call them out. Ooh. Because they were so great. (laughs) <laughs> and seeing both of their worlds unraveling and being on this adventure, this terrifying adventure with Edith and having Jessica Chastain's character, Lucille, having her world crumble right before her eyes and seeing the depths that she will go to everything and having that actor be able to do that was awesome. It, it's I also, also another fact that I don't have, but apparently Jessica Chastain was offered the role of Edith, but she thought that Lucille was a more challenging and interesting role. So she actually opted out and took the role of Lucille. That's cool. Which is good because she fucking nails it. She does. And I just want to also highlight that both of these characters are so strong willed and multifaceted. And again, I love having women in horror Women in Horror Month, Hell yeah. having women in horror that are not just the typical, like, I'm a sister. We really talk about that in our live Babadook episode. Yeah. But like, 
having women who are actual people instead of just being defined by being women like, was awesome. Edith could otherwise have just been from daughter to wife, but she was writer, then daughter, and then not... Wi- What's the word for widow, but orphan? Then yeah. orphan, and Sleuth. then wife. Yeah. She She's so strong-willed. She figures this out all by herself. She's a ghost hunter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Also, it's interesting that it made me think of both of their world's are destroyed but you get to see each of their individual reactions like edith is sad for a bit and then she's really motivated to make this new marriage work and then let's not forget when she discovers them in the bedroom and then we see her world crumble yet again yeah and she again is like well i'm gonna make this work not this specifically but i'm gonna get to work and make make this better um whereas lucille gets pissed off and then murdery yeah She's like, oh, my world's crumbling. I'm going to kill my world, basically. Which, I mean, I want this and you can't have it, so nobody can. In the beginning of, or near the beginning of the movie, when Thomas just completely dunks on Edith and her her story, if Lucille was in that situation, she would have pulled out her dad's pen and stabbed him in the face right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas she's like, listen, you English twat. In no such words, but still. Yeah. She kind of recovers pretty well. And then her dad dies. Which was sad. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting because then it's like framing them as, you know, women aren't all the same and react differently to things. Yeah. Yeah. My last point is because I feel like we've been talking pretty positively about this movie, but they kind of ruin it at the end because they're trying to give like Tom does this unforgivable thing. This the entire movie sur- is surrounded by the plot of Tom luring women to his home to murder them for their money all while also cheating on them with his sister and like just so many layers of betrayal. Yeah. And then they do this like stupid last minute. I'm going to be your hero and try and save you twice as a real human. I'm going to (laughs) come back as a ghost and be the reason that you can escape my sister in this battle to the death with a shovel. I mean, that was cool on its own. But no, no, you do not get to make me sympathetic for you. You are an asshole. (laughs) What the fuck? I'm surprised that you were either you were sympathetic or you thought you were supposed to be sympathetic. Because I think if anything, for me, at least it showed that Edith was a better person. Like Thomas comes popping out and he's like, no, 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 I can explain. Just give me this chance, please. And Edith is still on guard, but she's like, "Okay, you have one chance, basically. Okay, I like that view better. So I'm going to try and do that. And then when Thomas like tries to do the right thing, how does he get repaid for it? Gets murdered in the face. And then in the very last moment, rather than. I don't know, just like convincing or showing his love or whatever. Like his one last thing in death is to fucking kill his sister and take out everything that was against Edith. And what does he get? Probably eternal peace, peace or eternally live in this haunted house with his mom, his sister and the wife that he killed. I imagine that all the ghosts after this has concluded, this is like what can set them free. I think. When Edith sees or something. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like. I feel like Crimson Peak's going to be haunted by ghosts and then sink into the clay. That's fair. But I do want to take this moment. I do appreciate your view. And I think that's definitely more positive and better way to think (laughs) and feel about it. But I wanted to take this moment because I was describing what Tom has been doing. And there's a person in history that has actually done this. Ooh. And um, it's Women in Horror Month. And this is a real woman in horror. And also I've heard that you know, true crime is like a popular yeah. podcast thing. Okay, wait, 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 wait. 
Welcome back to Drinking and Screaming, your favorite podcast about true crime. If you're sitting out there listening to us and you're ready to hear about some true crime and follow us and feel emotionally connected to murderers and psychopaths, you've come to the right place. I have with me here Charlene Bear, who's an expert on a woman that apparently did something similar to Crimson Peak, and she's about to talk about it. Char? Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to my lovely TED Talk on this, which is Drinking and Screaming True Crime Time. Uh, <laughs> dun, dun. True Crime, Drinking and Screaming. This is so good. <laughs> um, but so Belle Gunness, she's a Norwegian American serial killer who's thought to have killed at least 14 people, but up to about 40 or more between the years of 1884 and 1908. Wow. She used to take out insurance policies on her husbands and then they would die by freak accidents. So like her life started out with a real husband and they had children and whatever. And then somehow after buying insurance for their farmhouse or buying life insurance for him, he mysteriously dropped a meat cleaver or not a meat cleaver, a meat grinder on his head. Oh, interesting. Oh, somehow. Yeah, that happens. Uh, you, know. you know, happens to the best. I mean, <clears throat> and as that happens to the best of us. Shar then went on to explain what she did next. <laughs> Sorry, I hate podcasts like that where it's yeah. like Shar then told me about this person. Let I'm me tell you about it. this person. Yeah. So let me tell you. So eventually, so she killed her original husband, then she gets married again, and that husband has children of his own that join this family, so to speak. And then she kills that husband too. And then eventually she just stops marrying them at all. And she would just put out personal ads in the paper being like wealthy widow searches wealthy partner to like take on life. Wealthy suitor. Sorry. So then men would just come to her farm and she worded these ads basically being like, prove yourself by bringing a thousand dollars and don't nice. tell anybody. And then people would fall, fall for it. So then she would kill them and keep their money and she'd bury them on her property, on Sick. her farm. So eventually she faked her own death in a fire. She burnt down her house and she used the corpse of her beheaded housekeeper to be her in the house. And she had killed both of the. Sorry, what? Like she she propped up her housekeeper to look. She, she chopped off her housekeeper's head. So that she couldn't remember this is the 1800s. So she couldn't be identified in the remains of the fire because eventually oh, her whole oh, house would you. burn down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was also the remains of the two children who were uh, buried, uh, burned alive. But then so then the town was like, oh, this is so tragic. And like, oh, she was such a she was really trying to find love. We cut to an interview of one of the townsfolk. <laughs> yeah, you know that Belle Gunness. She really was just trying to find some true love, and I feel bad for her because, you know, she had suitor after suitor come down here, and she really got close with this last one. But then, dang nabbit, her house darn catch on fire. I've, I'm now standing in the burned remains of the fire. <laughs> That's me stepping on some stuff. Anyways, <laughs> back to shore. Uh, but then, so as this tragedy struck the town, they start going through the wreckage and then they find sacks of dismembered body parts. Nice. And then they just keep digging and digging and then they just find all this shit and they're like, oh my God, she had so much money. She was getting so much insurance from all these dead people. Wow. And so she, it turns out that like she faked her own death. She managed to escape. She technically was never heard of again. But a few towns over, eventually people, men started to disappear again. Wealthy men were 
being killed. Hmm. So that could be her again. But yeah, she's obviously dead now because it was like hundreds of years ago. But super cool. Super awful. And the mystery still remains. That's been Drinking and Screaming, a murder mystery horror podcast. Please follow us on Earwolf Gum Road and Spotify. You can donate to our Patreon. Special thanks to Charlene Bear for the interview in this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to have my last thought be about... um True crime, real time. It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's we're so far removed from that in- incident that like it stops being sad and just is a f- f- sick hustle. Yeah. Got to respect her. That was my last line. Scary shit, but damn, she had ambition. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for... Da-da-da! Scaredy facts. So for those of you who don't know, our scaredy facts section is completely ripped off our own relationship where after we watch a horror movie we'll snuggle up in bed and read some trivia facts to try to scare away the scares so to speak and now we've incorporated you into our relationship this week i am doing the facts huzzah luckily char has filled in all of the budget and estimated earnings for me so i didn't have to do that tell me though because i didn't actually read it i just know where to go the budget of this movie was a staggering 55 million dollars which like that blows my mind. But also think about all that CG that was done and did not look like shit. So thank well, you for paying your artists. Uh, I don't have a fact about this, but most of that wasn't CG. Tell that, me more. The house was completely made as a set. Yeah. But like the ghosts and the stuff. ghosts were costumes with CGI on top of it. Mm. Like it, there's an actor. I should have wrote his name down because he's in all these Gil, Gil, Guillermo del Toro movies. Um, who plays like the lanky uh, creatures. Yep. And he wore pretty much all the way up to the, like the red spandex and stuff and was doing the, the walking of the ghosts. And then they CGI'd on top of that. Nice. Which like, cool. I would say the ghosts are probably the only thing that are like actually CG'd except for like streets of Boston to look older and stuff like that. Uh, the opening weekend of this movie, they made... $13 million. Oh, man. October 18th, 2015. And their gross is only $31 million in the U.S. With a cumulative worldwide of $74 million, which... That's they, good. They, they made a lot of money. They made it a bit back. A lot. They made $24 mil, or like $20 million more than they had I think, budgeted. I think I remembered reading somewhere that for a movie to be considered a success, it has to make twice its budget. But I think that's like, think about this budget is huge. Yeah, they could have made 100 mil easily. Yeah, eh. with a cast like that, maybe if Johnny Depp was Thomas Sharp, <laughs> although this was hot on the heels of Loki. So I feel like Tom Hiddleston had as much clout. <clears throat> he did so well. I only know him from being Loki. He does a lot of older movies. I feel like Loki was probably his like big break into American cinema. Okay. So he's been in a couple things in American cinema since then, but most of his stuff is British. All right. My first fact is that, Oh, I already said this. Everything in the house was made for the house. Nothing was refused from salvage parts, but so it's not a set. It's, or it is a set. It is a set, but nothing was, everything was made for the house. Okay. Like the house was made. Yeah. And then they had to get rid of it oh. immediately after making this movie. Man, bad for the environment. Exactly. Um, and they didn't reuse. You're saying nothing was reused. No, everything was made for, the, which is why it was 55 fucking million dollars to God make. Damn. They even made double set pieces because there were some scenarios where something was supposed to be, look smaller in the distance. And then when 
Edith walks up to it, it gets really big to like emphasize her feeling tiny in the house. Yep. So there's a chair that she sits in next to a fire in the house and it's scale changes throughout the movie. That's cool. Well, that's when like, uh, she's trying to steal the tea. Yeah. She, like fake sick on sick on the couch. And that chair changes. It, does. it scale. is big. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that also, I mean, that makes the movie look really good because they can do long panning shots of people chasing each other through the house without having to do any cuts. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the haunting of Hill house. Oh bit. yeah. And we watched the behind the scenes of that, that oh, show. That was so cool. We'll Which, do an episode on that eventually yeah, too. So good. Um, my second fact is that not Johnny Depp, but Benedict Cumberbatch was originally cast as Thomas. Oh. But he left the project due to undisclosed reason, reasons. Oh. Literally, I would say 50% of the facts and or yeah, 50% of the trivia to this movie is about the situation revolving around Benedict Cumberbatch leaving. Do you have information? None. Because it doesn't seem like it was um bad. Like it doesn't seem like he left because he hated Del Toro or something like that. Yeah. But he specifically says in interviews that Del Toro knows why I left. And Del Toro also refuses to say why he left. I hope this isn't like a Hollywood awful Like a terrible secret that they're hiding. Yeah. Apparent, like, I don't know. I don't want to bring any rumors up, but there are some rumors. Some people say it was a scheduling problem. Some say that he didn't want to work with Jessica Chastain. I feel like if it's a, uh, he knows why I left, it's not going to be a scheduling problem. Yeah. Someone, uh, I, again, I don't want to bring up rumors. This is literally just what it says in the IMDb trivia. Yeah. So uh, take it with a grain of salt. But apparently when... Someone said when he found out that Jessica Chastain was going to play his sister and not his wife, he had problems. So maybe he didn't wasn't didn't feel comfortable with like the subject matter. Who's to say? Yeah. But um, Tom Hiddleston then uh, played for the part or uh, auditioned for the part. Yeah. And within 48 hours was cast as uh, Thomas Sharp. Nice. But he specifically asked Benedict Cumberbatch if for his blessing because he didn't want to accept his role and like step into this character that uh, Benedict had made. And right. apparently they're good friends in real life because they're British. You know, all British people <laughs> know each other. That's how that works. Um, and then Cumberbatch told him that it was amazing to have been replaced by him. So oh. it seems happy ending. Amicable? I don't know. Who's to say? Hmm. My third fact is that Jessica Chastain actually learned the piano for this movie and she performed all the songs in the movie by herself. Nice. Uh, apparently she had previously learned the bass guitar for Mama, which I also want to watch. <gasps> I totally forgot she was in that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I knew I couldn't place how I knew her. I think it's from that. I feel like I've seen her in other things, but we also didn't really watch Mama. We walked into a room after all the scary parts were done. Yeah. Uh, but Del Toro was also a producer on Mama. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Once you're in in fucking Hollywood, you're just in. Especially when you have a niche like Del Toro of yeah. monster, cool monster designs. And then, yeah, you were saying like Tom Hiddleston read the part and then he was cast like 24 hours later. Man, he got be auditioning is basically being offered the role. I mean, like who else are you going to get to replace Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> like Hugh Grant, maybe? Hugh Jackman. No. <laughs> well, maybe. Someone unknown, like it's just yeah. I don't think they wanted someone unknown for a movie no, with a fucking budget was, of fifty-five million yeah. goddamn dollars. Um, but yeah, that's dedication to learn. I don't know. It doesn't. It's again kind of a fluffy trivia. So she might have already had some piano experience, but to learn piano, she probably like specifically learned the songs that were in the movie. Yeah, but that's still impressive. That's super cool. Yeah, I love that. 
That's uh, really committing. Good work. I didn't include this fact, but the actor who plays Alan was specifically interested in this role because he was told by Del Toro that he would be playing the damsel in distress. Del Toro specifically wanted the male love interest to be written as like the damsel in distress. And think about like the end of the movie where he gets stabbed and then Edith basically like holds him down. Has to come and save him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he was very excited to play that role because... He liked seeing the the flipping on his head. And speaking of flipping it on his head, my Ah. actual final fact is that for the sex scene between Thomas and Edith, uh, Tom Hiddleston actually broached the idea of male nudity um, because he said that often in these situations, the woman is more naked than the man. And we thought we would just reverse the balance. Nice. Redress the balance, which is much more funny than the thing that I said. Uh, the result was zero nudity for uh, Maya Wasikowski. Wasikowska? Uh, unless you count her bare legs. While Tom was naked from the butt up. Heck yeah. Which actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't put it in my thoughts. But specifically seeing that scene, I was like, this is really well done. Mm. Because people, I find often in movies, like it's saying, like they glorify the nudity of women And you never really see people have sex with clothes on, but that's like something that real couples do and like real moments of heat. And you you don't even want to take off everything. You just want to do it. Especially in that moment where they've literally been. She's been waiting for so long to be alone. They haven't had sex yet at all. And then she's also probably wearing like layers and layers of clothes that require like untying and stuff. Yeah, Nobody got time for that. Kind of take off the bottom part and go to town. Cause yeah, like literally when she gets on top, she has to like lift up her dress and then sits down and then like puts it down. Yeah. And you're also talking about how like most movies will do like covers over top of bodies, which a hundred percent has to be because you can't show the top of a woman in most movies. So to have the guy be shirtless, you could show that all you want Yeah. and then have his, has have his butt sitting out a little bit. Which yeah. was hot. It was good. I just liked it. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Um, but yeah, I like that, at least from the actor's point of view, and it seems the director, that they did want to kind of flip the script on the the gender norms in movies. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm so glad that that, that I'm so glad that you found that trivia fact. Because mm-hmm. yeah, like it probably like the producers were like, nah, you got to show tits, which you do. You see boobs in this movie. It's just ghost boobs. Ah, true. Yeah. So it's a man wearing prosthetics. But uh, yeah, I think that's really cool that, especially in this movie about really strong women, that they were like, nah, fuck it. Let's flip the flip the script on them. Love it. Yeah. Also, I want to tell you that your drink went straight through me. I'm feeling it. Yeah, I didn't eat today. So <laughs> a drink made purely of liquor was a bad choice. Oof. I want some final thoughts. Should I go first or do you want to go first? Um, You can go first since I've been talking a lot. All right. I want to use my final thought to really acknowledge Women in Horror Month because I'm so glad that we participated this year and we got to celebrate so many powerful and amazing women both on and off camera in the horror genre. And once I'm finally not sick anymore, I will definitely be donating to the blood drive, which is the last part of Women in Horror Month. The whole idea is obviously to celebrate women, but also there's a blood drive um, so if you yourself would love to do uh, some donating blood, you can do that at any hospital. You can organize uh, an appointment with your doctor or you can also just look for like blood donations, Vancouver or whatever, and see when the next event they have uh, is happening. 
This is like one of the first years that I can actually donate blood. <gasps> but I feel like I'm probably not able to. I purposefully didn't tell you about it just because I knew that you you don't like it. It makes you feel bad. Yeah. Also, for those of you who don't know, I don't know if it's anywhere else, but specifically in Canada, there's a lot of like rules about queer men giving blood. Oh, man. It's this got- should be your final thought, man. <laughs> Fuck that. It's gotten a little slightly better. But it's yeah, awful. It was basically like if you had um gay sex in the last six months or a year you're not allowed to give blood they also have rules about because of aids yeah the the, the, sexually the thing that you can test for you, disease they, that anyone can get because they test for anemia and stuff like that before you get, give blood but they refuse <laughs> to do like the hardcore ones but uh also you can't get a piercing or tattoo six months before giving blood um, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of archaic rules about giving blood. So if you can do it because all the cool queer people who want to give blood usually can't, even Ugh. if they're in a fucking like married men can't give blood, which is stupid. That's not my final thought. Although blood it plays a big role in this movie. <laughs> um, what is your final thought? I, like I said, this is the fourth time I've seen this movie, so yeah. I'm not really scared of it anymore, but it still has this like pacing where every time you see a ghost at this point for me i feel excited because it's it's not the fear of seeing a new ghost and the jump scare and stuff it's just man these ghosts play such an integral role to the story and edith even says that her story isn't a ghost story it's a story with a ghost in it yeah. which is 100 percent what this movie is and i think that's really cool that it's not technically quote unquote like a horror movie it is more of a romance movie and the ghosts are just in it. It's kind of the same way that like Pan's Labyrinth is a fantasy movie with horror in it. Right. Yeah. And I really like that. I think not many directors can do that other than Del Toro, where it's like, this is a blank movie with horror in it. Yeah. Yeah. I also need to take back what I said at the beginning of this episode when I was like, I've seen it twice now. I think I'm done. I think this is the rewatch value in this film is high. And I love like you're saying, this is a romance movie. Like, I love romance. And it's yeah. interesting. I mean, now you know the twist and he's actually an asshole. But it's still a very cool plot. And it's just so visually striking. Mm-hmm. I could watch it again. Cool. Well, that's been Crimson Peak, a movie about women busting ghosts. But not not the Ghostbusters one with the women who also bust ghosts. It's a different one with women and ghosts in it. Next week, we'll be watching A Quiet Place from 2018. <gasps> I thought you said Women in Horror Month was over. <laughs> That's true. We can always celebrate women on this podcast. And remember, always scream responsibly. Uh, Bye! Uh,